Welcome back to the Back in Business Podcast, Season 2, where we talk to entrepreneurs about how they rise after the fall, be it current struggles or past failures, and share with you, our listeners, the strategies they used to rise stronger and faster. We're your hosts, Justin Bernioli. And I'm Joel McGalnick. So Lindsay McVean's a guy who seems to have done everything, and he's had to pick himself up a handful of times. He gave us some really good insights on his life uh, in the first part of our conversation with him. He had shame from leaving his relationships. He was isolated from his family, but he's also seen a lot of successes. And at this point, those successes seem to finally be starting to become greater than the failures he's experienced. Yeah. And he's also had to work through, you know, not knowing who he wanted to be, uh, you know, growing through that and how he might figure all these things out. Uh, eventually, he's taken a lot of time and created some structures around to sit down and re-envision himself on, on a regular basis. Yeah. So. With this conversation that we're having with him today, one of the things that I found really interesting was his discussion about the Overton window, which in a nutshell, and he will totally expand on this, is how we can have shifts in society about what's considered acceptable. And that can be positive or negative. We certainly see it in politics, but we also see it in technology and social issues, which Lindsay really saw become intertwined in his work. And so he had to ask himself, what are the ethical decisions that we as individuals need to make about the technology that we carry in our pockets. Yeah. And it's interesting because he sees some of the ramifications of this in, you know, the work that he chose and the tension between that, you know, the thrill of the technologist of building something new and exciting, but also being freaked out about it as a citizen, um, you know, and what, what that could mean for, you know, in his case, the CIA uh, and, and how they use things. Yeah, I mean, usually I think the CIA doesn't get involved, but yeah, it's, it's totally interesting. And, you know, maybe these are things that we don't think about in our day-to-day anymore, but these ethical issues are there. And, you know, maybe we rush out to buy the latest phones because of the shiny newness about it. And we don't always think about what's going on inside those devices on the back end and where's all that data going, everything like that. So another really powerful lesson that Lindsay shares is that he's gotten to this place where he no longer fears the imposter syndrome. I think that's really powerful. Totally. I agree. He's gotten a much better sense of who he is, both through understanding systems work and understanding how you know, foundations he's built with government and some of the tasks that he's done or work that he's done in the past, uh, but also partially because of the work he's done on relationships and stuff. And so he understands how to deliver and, and work throughout that entire system as, as, a, as a single piece. Yeah, I I agree. I, and I, I think we're going to see great things from him coming up in the future. So I think we've talked enough. So why don't we pick up Lindsay's story from that first part of our conversation after he's moved from Ireland to the U.S., kind of on a lark. And he met a guy who eventually became his co-founder of what would become a facial recognition company, which is kind of what we've been talking about with the Overton window and, and those ethical dilemmas. So ultimately, that experience wasn't his finest moment, as you're going to hear him reflect. So why don't we jump back into this conversation with Lindsay McVean. Um, I ended up living in uh, Las Vegas, uh, looking down the strip. I mean, this is kind of insane, but uh, it was this beautiful apartment and I was living there. We were brainstorming different business ideas and um, 
And so we came up with this uh, face, facial recognition kind of idea. We turned that into a facial network. And the vision was that we were going to allow people to um, to connect on social media using face, their faces. So you could say you're at a party or an event, you go click, uh, and it issues an invite to um, to that person on their social media account, um, uh, you know, and it, it finds them. So in order to do that, we needed to get people's faces from publicly accessible social media. This all starts to get a little bit hazy in the ethics realm. Right, um, but it, but it wasn't illegal. It just was. It just it did start to make me a little bit uncomfortable. People generally felt uncomfortable. Understandable. We um, we ended up getting a letter written to us by um, a senator, and the name of the senator escapes me. He's the guy that came from the Late Late Show, the comedian who then became a senator, um, and he wrote a public letter and named. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he, he named and shamed us as being um, you know, people that were abusing privacy um, in, in the US. And uh, we were in Nevada, so we could do this. So we, we'd scraped uh, uh, you know, all of the faces um, from uh, publicly social, public social media records. And, and we were going to make a system so that you could actually take a photo and that then that would issue an invitation. And we thought that that would be acceptable from a privacy standpoint because it wasn't doing anything that you couldn't do anyway. Uh, you know, if you, if you got, uh, you can drop a photo on Google and Facebook and so forth and you get a certain amount of facial recognition, but then there started to be all sorts of weird things going on. Like, you know, you know we got, because of the, the open letter, we started getting on CNN and, um, but then, you know, people started coming out of the woodwork because if you get down to facial recognition level, um, you start to interfere with the protection mechanisms in the U S such as, um, witness protection. Uh, literally spies, um, you know, and uh, undercover agents. And so I went to a conference, which was just filled with these various sort of shady types. And uh, I started to really get a sense like, wow, this is like getting a bit scary. Uh, in, you know, what's going on here? Um, and and then, uh, you know, because of my status as a B1 person, and we ha- weren't making revenue yet, but I was going to have to convert at some point if we started making revenue. We did raise money. Uh, we raised a uh, venture fund. Um, so I started going back to Ireland in order to work, to do work outside the U S as a contractor outside the U S and eventually I ended up just sort of stepping back from the whole business. And, but, it, but uh, what I haven't described is the, um, relationship I had, uh, with Kevin. And I'm, I know this is a public discussion. He'll probably, uh, you know, probably see this at some point, but, um, it, it, I felt that the environment he created was not a very healthy environment. And it's been a few years since I've uh, really even talked to him. Uh, and so I feel more comfortable talking about it now. But it was an environment that um, didn't raise people up and create a team. Mm. Uh, it, it made them individual and, and isolated them. And um, uh, it, it, I just felt it was, it was, it was wrong. And, I, and, I, and it was also a struggle at the beginning, at least when I was there, we struggled to release the software. It was actually really hard. And I realized that although I could code, and I wasn't, I wasn't the forefront of doing the facial recognition stuff. I was actually sort of, uh, I was being the MacGyver. I was mm. building, like, it turns out we had a problem, not just, um, not just understanding the face, but, but recognizing there was a face in the first place. Um, uh, but I was also good at sort of thinking strategically and the business side and, 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 and bouncing ideas off Kevin and so forth. But, but it just, yeah, it just started to, I just didn't feel, I, I didn't, I wasn't enjoying it. It was stressful. 
And um, I, I think other people in the business felt that as well. So in, in the end, I just, I just kind of, I was sitting in Ireland and I just kind of left. But I, I, didn't, I didn't have that much money. I put all my money in. Kevin had been paying me a small amount. Um, so I was out of, out of cash. And I ended up going to my dad and having to just sleep on uh, his floor because I, uh, I couldn't go back to my family at the time because our relationship had completely broken down. And uh, so I, I, I was left on the floor at my dad's wondering what the hell I'd just done. Like what, and what, and what, how old were you at this point? Uh, 25, 24, 25. Yeah. 20, yeah, about 25. And so um, this is, by all definitions, I would say, uh, you know, a failure in life. Um, but it wasn't that I was a failure. It was that the situation was, was a huge um, uh, miscalculation on my part about what it was I wanted to achieve and who it was I dreamed to be. I, uh, what, well, even who was I dreaming to be? I, I don't really know. I, I had a sense that I needed to go to America. I needed to have this dream, uh, you know, try and be part of this, this cool thing. And maybe I could make some cash, but actually it turns out the things that matter for me. And I think for a lot of people is, uh, family, um, is, um, meaning in your work. um, and uh, have working with good people, working with people you enjoy working with. And so all of these things, and so at that time I was laying on the floor at my dad's and it's because he didn't actually have a spare bed at the time. We, we ended up getting a spare bed, so at least I could then have a good night's sleep. But um, I was literally sleeping on the floor for the first uh, month. And, um, and I ended up going to, down the road and discovering that there was a, there was a Buddhist monastery and there was a Buddhist monastery in an old church there that used to be part of a mental asylum, which is a completely separate issue. But they'd set up this this um, this Buddhist monastery in there, and they were um, they were not Tibetan monks. They were, um, and I ended up spending uh, nearly a year in and out of there. And they actually were uh, preparing to try and uh, sort of send me away to become a monk. They were like kind of pay for my flights, and I was going to go off and be a monk for seven years. And I, I, there was a whole I had this dialogue with a lot of the monks there. I was hoping to teach them English. And I was sitting and meditating there a lot. And they had rules about, you know, you weren't allowed to, to dance or, or uh, you know, you weren't allowed to have any sexual activity. And the first, I remember the first time I read these rules and I was horrified because I was like, if I, you mean if I come here and meditate, I'm not allowed to do any of those things. And there was this fundamental miscommunication because they didn't, they didn't understand English very well. Um, they, they, they wondered why I wanted to do those things in the monastery. Whilst I was, I was wondering why I had to follow those rules when I wasn't at the monastery. They were, I remember them looking at me in horror when I was like, can I, is it okay if I do something, if I break some of these rules? Uh, and they thought I was going to break it in the monastery, but it turns out, you know, it's okay. We, you can just, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so I spent time there and uh, that, was, that was a learning experience. One of the pieces that you talked about was um, sort of walking away and running away, really. One of the things that, that we've chatted with a lot of folks about is, is that, you know, there's a lot of balls that are being juggled by entrepreneurs, especially when you're like one of the founders and you're full into it, right? And you're spending a ton of time on things and you're, you know, you're fully invested financially. And so when you drop all these balls, it's like, what do you do? In your case, you dropped all those balls and went to the States to seek your fortune and reset or whatever and try to patch up those holes. So how were you able to pick things up again once you got there? When I landed in uh, America, I had this incredible sense of freedom for about a week. Um, I, I remember driving to the, uh, to the, to the sea uh, in San Francisco and just looking out, just spending just the whole, just staring out the sea as the dawn rose. And 
um, just just looking through all my to do lists, and uh, you know, I'm a I'm a big I, I discovered getting things done at sort of mm. eighteen, nineteen, and so I've been trying to sort of develop my getting things done muscle ever since then. Um, uh, but I had, I, uh, but I, at the time I, I just sort of piled all this stuff that I was going to try and achieve for Coda Dojo onto my to-do list and being able to just tear them out and just sort of throw them into the breeze and <laughs> have, have, have nothing in my to-do list. Um, that was super and, liberating. It was, it was incredibly right. And, and, oh, well, I, I'm getting a, I'm getting a heart, uh, with Pearl and, uh, there you go. She's, uh, she loves me. Uh, there you go. And, uh, that, and that's, that's part good. of that's part of the journey, right? Is learning and that's loving these of, things, right? That's of, yeah, love you, Pearl. So, what did it take to uh, to go from uh, from dropping all the balls um, and then trying to, to have a false start in America? So, I I thought I re re envisioned myself at that time as okay, I'm going to achieve a startup. The basic concept of of what my success uh, had been with a basic whiteboard was okay. I think that I want to achieve uh, some freedom, level of freedom. That level of freedom looks like a couple of million dollars, um, and uh, and a sense of I've got it up my wall here, a sense of being able to choose my own work and the people I work with. Joel, the, your question was about um, why I wasn't comfortable with facial uh, facial network um, and the face. And it's facial. less about you know that company specifically, and more about you were feeling like you had mentioned earlier that you felt like this wasn't the right place for you. Your own values didn't really match with the idea of you know scraping people's faces off of publicly available networks, for example. So I was really wanting to know from you how you overlaid that on some of the other issues that you've been talking about with kind of thinking about how you move on to that next thing while you're still wrestling with the thing that you're doing right now. I was coming from a place where I wanted to um, find amazing people and, and, and interact with them. And that really is what it came down to. And um, he, so he was trying to protect himself because he was already wealthy and i think he'd had some bad experiences and he wanted a, a, a mechanisms by which he could protect himself and warn him so one of our products we came up with was something called creep shield which sounds terrible looking back now but the idea was <laughs> that we took we took all of the uh, faces of uh, you know uh, uh, publicly listed uh, sex offenders and what have you and uh, this this really you know hit the mark with with um, the media the mainstream media but it um uh but it, it didn't actually have much take up. In fact, it turns out most people don't really want to know if their neighbor is on a sex offender list. Uh, they're not going to use the system. Huh. I guess you got to know your market. That's so interesting because we watch the news and hear about facial recognition. And generally, I would say that coverage is quite negative. But then at this point, we'll pull our phones out of our pockets and unlock them with our faces. And we don't even think about it. Uh, do you know the Overton window? The idea that there's a sense of what's normal and that shifts over time. Uh, well, the, so the Overton window, um, as I understand it, is there is a range of acceptable uh, sort of behavior from institutions and individuals in public. And over time, um, you can, that, that Overton window can shift. So it used to be you know, unacceptable to have women you know, leading an organization, say. And then that shifted. So now, now it's kind of almost unacceptable. Uh, you know, to not have some women leading uh, organizations. And it's the same with many aspects of things in society. It, it's just a, a sense of what, what the, the common person thinks is normal, right? And um, so, so with 
uh, with privacy, Facebook shifted the Overton window quite quickly over the course of just a few years so that you went from an expectation of privacy to almost an expectation that you would be public in some form on the internet. Um, and so we were looking at that with, face, with facial recognition, that, and it is, it is happening. I could, I could see this was going to happen, that um, facial recognition was a knee-jerk, uh, sort of a disgust response from a lot of people. Uh, any, any, any mention of facial recognition um, pre-2000, well, b- before they started putting it into mobiles automatically. And it's now shifting where people now kind of almost expect to be recognized by their face. It's starting to get that way, and it's going to become that way much more. Yeah. Certainly with the implementation of sort of 5G, this idea that you're going to step outside cameras public cameras are going to see your face you won't even need a mobile you can just look up at one or you don't even have to look up you'll just say i need an uber and an uber will turn up um, you know that idea idea of sort of 5g is both terrifying and somewhat as a technologist uh, thrilling definitely opening a pandora's box i mean my partner we have discussions about implications of privacy and and so forth and we it it it, it does it terrifies us and also it thrills me anyway and i i don't know i don't know where the world is going on that front and so it and so that's what i wanted with facial recognition an asymmetric use of information which is we we can use your face to create events for you that fit with your world and i think that's the dream of technology generally we have all these naive technologists like me running around trying to do this stuff and then you have these very cynical kind of uh, you know washing Washington CIA types who then abuse that and use that to, uh, you know, control and, and defend. Ultimately, they're trying to defend against bad actors, right? But it leads to a world where you lose your power in some form. Definitely kind of scary, for sure. So to shift gears a bit, though, I'm curious about some of the big lessons you learned from this, this experience uh, that you took forward in your career, right? Things like, you know, how did you integrate all of these lessons into what you do now, especially because you've jumped from a you know, very agile, making things up as you go kind of roles uh, to much more structured learning that the government requires in some of the consulting work that you did. There are some other mechanisms that occur to me right now that are useful. Mm. Um, the first is if we get right down to sort of tactics of dealing in everyday life, for me anyway. Um, I started I started off, because of facial recognition, I started looking at, um, I particularly watched a series called... Um, Oh, it'll, it'll come to me. It's about a, 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 it's about a it's about a consultant in Washington who helps the people to recognize emotions on the face. And I think it's called is it liar or um, anyway uh, uh, maybe lie to me. Lie to me. Lie to me. Lie to me. That's lie, the one. lie to me. Is that, yeah, I think yeah, I watched lie, that. Once that's the one. And um, it is based on a true story, which is, uh, I believe his name is Paul Ekman. And he did actually go to Papua New Guinea, and he believed he had a um, a natural. Uh, what do they call it, a natural experiment or whatever, with a tribe that had not been exposed to the outside world. And he proved, using this tribe, that there are seven basic facial expressions that are biologically part of our makeup. That, that, and, and these represent the seven basic emotions. And I'm probably going to mash this up, but I believe uh, joy is the primary positive emotion. You also have shame. You have fear. You have, I believe fear and surprise are actually separated, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, and you have disgust. I could be, there may be one that's missing, maybe sadness, maybe sadness instead of surprise. But anyway, uh, and maybe there's there's one more, I'm not sure. Anyway, you can look it up. Paul Ekman, The Seven Basic Emotions. 
So I started looking at this and he started, he's, he has a framework of micro expressions. So you can actually build by his tool and you can train yourself to recognize micro expressions on the face. And after looking at this for a while, I didn't actually buy the tool, but I just started to just play with the idea. I started to realize that, um, that you can actually start to detect fundamental emotions, particularly, oh no, that's right. One, the final one is contempt and contempt is the emotion that is the, the worst emotion. And the reason it's the worst is because if someone displays contempt towards another human being, they believe that that other person doesn't even, doesn't deserve any, um, any respect from them. And it is the emotion that the a man at the gate of Auschwitz has for the Jews coming into the camp. It is, it is a sense that these are less, these people are less than human. Now we can have contempt all the time for sort of simple concepts. Like I might have contempt for our failure to achieve a goal, but I'm not contemptful of any individual or I tried not to be. Uh, because, because that is where that's the, to me, I believe that is a root of evil, right? When you hold someone in contempt, you believe that they don't deserve your compassion. Now, Paul Ekman had a, his own journey after discovering all these things. He, um, he worked with the FBI for years and was able to detect when someone was lying and doing all these different bits and bobs. And then he, um, he realized there was a, there was, there was something was missing. He was missing a human uh, component and he met um, the Dalai Lama and the, and he worked with the Dalai Lama and started to discover that recognizing the emotion on the face is just the start of the process. The actually where you go from there is deciding how to interact with the person. How to, if you discover that they are afraid of something, they're afraid of spiders, they're afraid of their relationship with their wife. Do you intervene? Do you, do you, uh, do you point out every little emotion that passes their face or do you back off? And do you, do you work with that person to help them to be a better human being? When do you bring up a subject, right? When do you talk about things? What is the right time and how, and do you, and do you constantly monitor to see, are you pushing too far? Are you pushing this person to the brink? And so that's a really interesting mechanism that I'm, I'm playing with. Interesting. You said you have a few mechanisms. What other learnings can you share from those? The second mechanism um, is a guy um, who also worked at the FBI, and he wrote a book um, called uh, Never Split the Difference. And he now has a masterclass, and his name uh, escapes me, but I can probably pull it up quickly. Um, uh, but anyway, in this book, he, uh, he talks about um, emotional intelligence. He was an FBI hostage negotiator, and he, uh, is, his, uh, he has brilliant tactics and mechanisms for how to deal with people in a human way, but also get what you want. And ultimately, if you can, try and achieve a win-win for both. Things like repeating the last three to five words with an optic. So um, you might say, optic? like that. And, and then I would continue to talk. And so it's a way to invite people to continue talking. Uh, he has mechanisms such as, um, uh, sort of naming the, the elephant in the room. So, um, so, so everyone is thinking something of you. And I started to use this to great effect. I was working, um, I was working with a, with a character that's quite difficult. Um, he was an IT guy and I was stood in front of a room making a presentation and I said, hi, I'm Lindsay. I'm here to implement this system. And he very quickly said, and me, and me, I'm also implementing this system. And, and without missing a beat, I just named the thing that everyone is now thinking about me. I said, uh, yes, uh, he does all the work and I take all the credit. And, and I said it, you know, with a bit more of tone of fun in my voice than just there, but by just naming that thing, it may, it just eased the tension on everyone. It, you know, everyone just felt, okay, he's, he knows, he knows what he's doing, right? He knows he's taking the credit. And this guy felt, 
you know, that I, that I named what his biggest fear was and therefore he didn't have to feel so sort of riled up about it. And so he could ease off. So it just lowered the tension a little bit. And so this idea of, of uh, just lowering the tension, taking the, neuro, the, the, the brain out of a scarcity mentality and back down to a, um, a, uh, an abundance mentality where you're ready to share. Um, so there's, a, there's research around this. That is actually, it's almost like a switch. It really is. If, if you feel, if someone says to you today, if someone came to you and say, says, um, all your money and all your accounts is gone, you would switch in a moment into a scarcity mentality. You uh, suddenly feel afraid, like, how can I do anything I'm, you know, I'm done for? And actually what happens is your brain actually starts to uh, filter out opportunities because it just starts to look for oppor- uh, just uh, short-term opportunities to survive. I can't pronounce the author's name, but he, um, he, in that he, he writes through a lot of, he has his own uh, beliefs about uh, universal basic income and all these sort of things. But what it sort of, almost you can almost sum the book up as saying that the reason we don't go for a lot of these social systems is because a lot of our political class and our, our and our population have a scarcity mindset that if that if we were to do it it would be abused and um and actually when you look at the data it's actually possible to be much more open it's not that the bad things don't happen and that we shouldn't protect ourselves it's that actually you can you can push the boat a lot further on sharing and win-win situations than most people we ever believe is possible i actually find this idea so fascinating it's something that i think about quite a bit because we see politicians all the time, they're fighting against these benefits because they worry about deficits and economic fallout. And they're, they're putting this focus on scarcity instead of abundance. And it really comes down to exactly what you just said. It's fear. So how do we train ourselves to mitigate that? I lost a fear somewhere in the last five years that I lost the imposter syndrome to some degree. I mean, everyone has it, right? And yeah. you're always afraid that someone's going to find you out, that you don't really know what you're doing. But, but I lost it because I went and actually worked with big government agencies in the UK and delivered on deadlines and so forth and saw how the process works. So I lost that fear. So I, no, I no, now no longer, it's not that I just don't have a fear about delivering software. I now no longer have a fear about having uh, work. Like I, I can have... Um, you know, useful paid work, no matter where I am, unless the internet goes away. Right. Um, so, so that fear suddenly has gone away. I don't have that fear. And I know I, I, well, maybe I'm being an idiot, but I think, I think that I can support my family going forwards and, uh, and that's no longer a fear. So I've now, I, I that's what I would say. I'm, I've now become a, a man. I'm no longer a boy in that, in that regard. I really value your time, uh, even more so, you know, with some of the context you just shared. Um, you know, I, I guess the one question I'd like to, to end with, and it's not necessarily on script or anything, but is, you know, you've been very generous with your time uh, to, to join and share your stories. Um, are there any things that, that myself or Joel um, can help with, or maybe even per- perhaps, you know, broader to the, the audience of the listenership? Like, are there things that we can help through the network of network? Right now, uh, I'm never going to miss an opportunity to, uh, to plug my, uh, my current work. So, um, so uh, scholar6.org. Scholar6.org, spelled S-C-H-O-L-A-R, number six.org, is the company I'm working on. We have a vision for education uh, blended with uh, education technology, with network of teachers building content. Um, we have enough funds to last us uh, into next year. We're either going to make ourselves profitable, get, uh, get investment or um, further investment to keep going, or uh, we're going to 
we're going to, you know, sort of blow out of the market. Um, so if you want to, if you know anyone that is in the education, in the education investment space or just education generally, uh, please do share that with them. And we'd love to add to our community of people. The other a uh, program I'm, I'm involved with is something called the dialoguecode.org, which is a um, uh, is is uh, a process that is um, helping leaders to uh, really uh, open open and and discover that their their own big elephants, but in their organisations and as individuals. Working with a woman called uh, Neve, who is um, putting that together, and she's had a lot of success with major corporations. We're just starting to to look at putting that together properly from a technical. She has a process that she wants people to follow uh, technically, so we're gonna we're gonna start doing that. I will guess we'll have to end it there because um, there's lots of things to do. And uh, again, I can't thank you enough. It's been a wonderful pleasure chatting. And uh, I hope to keep in touch, uh, you know, going forward. This is going to help people uh, that are struggling. And uh, so, so, so blow, blow it out of the water. Get it, get it out there. Get, get, uh, I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about your program. Right. Uh, so so get, get, uh, get this out there because there's not enough discussion about shame and failure and coming back up back that it's all part of the human experience and that it's, that, uh, that it's not the end. So, yeah. Perfect. Thank you very much. New beginnings. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Justin. Cheers. Back in Business is executive produced by the two of us, Justin Bertignoli and Joel McGalnick. Want to be featured on Back in Business? Email us at story at backinbusiness.io. Find resources, assistance, or just someone to lean on by visiting us at backinbusiness.io. Thanks for being part of our journey back. 